Hello. Hello, John. Hey there, Dan Benjamin. How are you? Oh, I'm good. You're here. You're here. That's the main thing. You're here. Yep. Yeah, we're both here, and Mm. that is the main thing. That is an important thing. This podcast would be very hard to do if it if only one of us was here. I mean, it would be different. Yeah. If only you were there, yeah. you could do a podcast there with with Hattie just talking to each other or to the wall. Yeah. I've done lots and of shows pod- where I, I, it's just me talking to nobody, and then I just release uh-huh. it as a show. And then if I did it, I could record myself talking, but I have no idea how to release a podcast into the atmosphere. But you would, you could like, do things a lot of people can't do. You could play, you could play some instruments. You could sing, give people uh, a little, you know, a little experience. Well, I could, Dan. Except, like I say, I could sit here and play guitar and um, and record it. Yeah. Right. I could go. La 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 la. But I have zero idea how to put a podcast up. Right. So that anyone could hear it. So I wouldn't be playing for anyone. I would just be playing for myself and recording it. Right. And even that would be amazing. I mean, I should do that. I should do that more. Yeah, you should. Why don't you? It's weird. It's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. So it's making going music on is hard. Way up there. I heard you guys Let's are. Oh, are you, aren't you all open? Isn't everything all open now? No, no. You didn't open up. I thought you guys opened up and everything was <laughs> open and good. Oh, everything's fine. No, I think that um, Seattleites in general are not chomping at the bit to get our tattoo parlors and nail salons open. Mm. I know a lot of people just in general, I think, you know, your average American person or person globally wants to do something else besides what we've been doing the last couple of months. But Seattleites tend to be cautious rule followers who believe in science and practice liberal politics and read the newspaper. That's another thing. Or read the, uh, read the internet, read the blogs, uh, make informed decisions. These are some of the things that we, that we kind of pride ourselves on here. Is that so? Just in the Seattle area though, not really out in Yakima or Spokane necessarily. I mean, Spokane is pretty good. Yeah. Right, right in the center of town. You know, Spokane is, is one of those cities where, Boy, you can, you don't have to go far, mile and a half even, maybe out, out Sprague, Sprague Avenue, mm. and you start to get into the sticks pretty fast. Uh, but, uh, and see, boy, Seattle, that's true too, Dan. I could get in my car and in 20 minutes, you would think I was in, boy, Montana. You really? Know? Just in the sense of, the geography would change that fast and yeah. the culture would change that fast. And, uh, but here, right here in the town, yeah, right here by the, by the natural food co-op and the Trader Joe's, I think you're going to find that everybody's still wearing masks and social distancing for the most part. I went to the Fred Meyer the other day and there were Fred Meyer, some people that didn't seem to give a, give a rat's ass. But I was in there at 11 o'clock at night and, 
you know, the people that are grocery shopping at 11 p.m. are their own. That's their own group. <laughs> yeah. Fred Myers. It's one of those places where sometimes you'll you'll be behind a lady who's paying with coupons and paying with a check. Yeah. You're like, oh boy, I'm in for the long haul here. Yeah, that's an evening. Picked the wrong line is yeah. what that is. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we, we, we were talking about it a lot here up, uh, up um, amongst the people I know because, sure, we'd like to see each other. We'd like to have a little little dinner. Right. You know, Ken Jennings was saying yesterday that the one thing he missed was going to restaurants. He didn't necessarily miss restaurant food mm-hmm. or other people. What he missed was the experience of going to a restaurant. Right. Because the it's food, a, eating eating the delicious food that can be prepared at a at a restaurant. Yeah, the food, I guess, but also just the whole like, let's go burn an hour and a half of what seems like an endless day by like shuffling in. Uh, somebody at the counter says, "Hi, welcome to wherever," and here, follow me, and they get some menus, and uh, then they walk you to a table, and you sit there, you eat some chips or whatever. I mean, that whole experience is. Ken has said uh, to me a couple of times that he doesn't really, he doesn't really miss his friends. He miss going. He misses going to the movies and out to eat. Mm-hmm. And I can I can see that. Yeah. Uh, I've got. I think tonight some some old friends of ours are going to try and get our families on a Zoom call, but that doesn't really sound very fun to me. <laughs> We're going to try it though. We're going to well, try I mean, it. It's it's not the same thing, is it? Well, and I didn't even like getting our families together when it was in person. Yeah, I mean, not, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just like, oh boy, have yeah. we really got to go through that. Yeah. But for us, I think, you know, for me personally, I still, and this is going to sound weird. Yeah. I still do not have any interest in getting a potentially fatal disease. No, no, that doesn't sound weird to me. I don't want my lungs to uh, to be deprived of air. No, it's one of my like it's one of my like top priorities. Yeah, I don't want organ failure. I don't want to be intubated. I don't want any of these things. Would you Would you and say your your lungs crave air? They do. They yes. do, Dan. Yes. And when I think about like what I am willing to. Like our, our good friend, Don Schaffner, the, uh, the, the food scientist, yes, the yes. Rut- Rutgers food scientist, Don yeah, Schaffner, famous. big, big wig, famous guy. He, he's top, he's a top man. One mm-hmm. of the top men. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don, uh, in conversation with me has, uh, has taught me that every time you put food in your mouth, you're mm-hmm. taking some amount of risk. Yes. And so choosing what to eat is always a question of calculated risk. Is this box of macaroni and cheese that I just made fresh, uh, fresh, uh, what are the risks that I'm going to be poisoned by this food? Well, the risks are pretty low with a box of macaroni and cheese. Now, what about this casserole that I found under the couch? (laughs) Well, that's a different story, isn't it? The risks are higher, right? Uh, yes. Now, how how hungry am I? How does the does the casserole smell bad? Does it look funny? Uh, can you remember how it ended up under the couch? Was it just last night? Uh, was it a couple of weeks ago? So every cha- every time you make a food decision, you're weighing the choice. Well, weighing the risks, 
And for me, it's, uh, it, it's still a question of like, what do I want in life mm-hmm. more than I don't want to be intubated? Oh, right. Okay. And I feel like there's not a lot that I'm not already getting in terms of food and shelter and, and, uh, the love of my family. There's not a lot more that I need more than I don't need to be deprived of breath by a, by an immune system gone mad, for instance. Right. So I can't, I still can't think of a compelling reason to do anything other than what I've been doing, which is not doing things. Right. And, um, when I do have to go out wearing a mask and avoiding being very close to, uh, people for very long and that just, uh, you know, it doesn't feel like that much of a sacrifice mm-hmm. relative to the alternative, right? The alternative, which would be the intubation stuff. Yeah. 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 Or even just being really sick and then getting better. Like that doesn't sound very fun to me either. Uh, because I'm, you know, I'm somebody who has spent a lot of his life sick. Right. I had a, I had a weakened immune system for some reason because, you know, God likes to build small flaws into all of his perfect creations. Uh, yes. <laughs> and in my case, he said, what can I do here to fuck this one up? Let's right. see. I'm going to make his teeth not fit just subtly. It's not, it's not crazy. I'm not going to. He's not snaggletooth. I'm just going to make his teeth not fit. Right. And I'm going to make his lungs uh, very attractive to all kinds of, um, you know, airborne infection. What else? What else can I do? Oh, his eyes are going to gradually degrade. Yeah. Little by little, he's going to not be able to see very well. And then, you know, just some usual stuff. Just the usual stuff, hangnails and right, middle-aged prostate. Sure. Okay. My daughter. Is that a thing? Uh, what is that? What middle-aged prostate? Yeah. What does that mean? How old are you, Dan? Forty-seven. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, tell me what. Tell me. I'm. I'm listening. Well, do you know what a prostate is? Yes. Yeah. It's a. It's some kind of naughty ball. Yeah. Some gland that, or whatever it is, something right. that sits something down that, there. It's down there that your, can have problems. Yeah, it's in your undercarriage. Right. But one of the things that, that, that happens to you when you get to be, see, I'm 51, so I'm right. four years older than you, and you and I are, you and I are bookending in our age. Yeah. Uh, this, this, this terrible period right around the age of 50 when, um, your eyesight suddenly just, you know, exits stage, stage left. Right. And also your prostate for, for no good reason, uh, it just starts getting bigger and it's not, it's not a pathology. It's not. And bigger is usually better, bigger and better. That's uh, what I think. Bigger and better. That's right. Except the problem is that the prostate is around uh, the, um, your, uh, P tube, the tube right, right, right. that goes from your insides where you're, where you're making P yeah. where you're taking other perfectly good ingredients and refining them to P yeah. 
and then the outside of yourself where the P where you want the P ultimately to end up. Right. You've got it in you. You want it to get out of you. Yes. There are only so many ways that can happen. Right. (coughs) Because of the nature of your body, you can't barf it. Right. It's got to come out the, the hole. Thank goodness you can't barf it. Can you imagine if you could barf pee? I don't know. Ugh. Maybe it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that bad. You get I used don't to think it. So. Uh, well, you might get used to it, but I, that's not, you know, I would prefer to sweat it out. If you could, if there was like a little valve where you could say like, okay, now I'm ready to sweat some pee out. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to just be like out in town and like all of a sudden you're sweating pee. That would also be kind of disagreeable. No, there's really one way for it to leave your body. And unfortunately that, that highway, um, is surrounded by the, uh, clover leaf, the, the, the naughty Texas sized clover leaf uh-huh. of a prostate gland. And as you get older, it just gets larger. I'm not sure why. And, you know, I know that you're in better better shape than I am in the sense that you try and keep a flat stomach. You, uh, you're not, uh, you don't tend to, as I do eat a piece of pie at two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. with, with a big scoop of ice cream on it. Right. I have no idea how much that piece of pie is inspiring my, well, that's what um, I was going to say is like, what if, what if the, you know, you're, con- are you, are you implying that there's some way that you might be contributing through your behaviors, your diet, other things like that, that you, you might be contributing to the size of your prostate and that, that are you saying that you have a prostate that is causing problems? Is that what you're, is that what I'm hearing? You know, you and I, Dan fall uh, again on different sides of the, um, is your physical ailment a sign of a moral failing? Okay. Okay. And I feel like you often uh, will attribute uh, some kind of physical, you'll, you'll attribute a physical ailment to some sort of behavior, which implies that you have bad habits or willpower, have made the wrong choices. Well, Do yeah. Not, you have, you have the one where, uh, this is the modern one. You have, uh, your, your lack of health is a result of you not understanding the science. That's a great one. And not understanding the science is also its own form of, uh, of a failing of virtue. You're taking it a little farther than I would, but I, I appreciate what you're saying. I, I'm not, uh, we're not in disagreement with that completely. Yeah. I like to, and you I, know, when, I, when, when something happens, uh, health related or, or, or whatever, I like to say, is, is this something that maybe I could, I could avoid or fix or repair in some way. And is there something that I'm doing or not doing that if I were to change that, that it would, it would fix this problem or potential problem or stop it maybe from happening. And sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes, you know, it's yes. And so I was just curious what you were thinking of. um, Well, here respect here in the, uh, in webmd.com says there are, uh, there are three conditions, three prostate conditions. One of them is called prostatitis, 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 prostatitis. That's what it is. Okay. It's prostatitis. Prostatitis. Why prostatitis. Did, 
boy, I, you know, medical words, I really have to sound them out. Well, they're all, uh, they're all uh, written in Latin. Mm. Well, anyway, prostatitis is the inflammation of the prostate sometimes caused by infection treated with antibiotics. All right, that's not what, what I have. And also, I should point out, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I used to go to dinner with my dad, and he and his friends would sit around and talk about their prostates. And I would roll my eyes at them and say, my God, you guys, look at yourselves. Like, your lives have become so boring. Right. Here, you guys all fought in World War II. You've all, you all, you, you socialized with senators and presidents, and you're sitting around talking about your prostates? Right. And my dad would t- turn all frowny face and say, you have no idea. One day, one day you'll know. And I was like, ugh, never. Just like every young liberal, I said, I'll never become like you, old right. conservatives. No. And in this case, just about the prostate. Uh, but they were obsessed with it, the old man. And now here you and I are on our on our lively young person podcast. Well, you're talking. you're talking about it. I'm just listening. Well, but you're the one giving me the quiz. Uh, anyway, then the third, the most extreme <laughs> well, version yeah, of I'm it is- I'm a curious person, John. And- <laughs> is prostate cancer. Right. Which is, it that. says here- the most common form of cancer in men besides skin cancer. It says, although the most common form of cancer, only one in 41 men die from prostate cancer. What is What are the rest the, of them doing? Surgery, uh, radiation therapy, hormone therapy, chemotherapy. How do I, how, so how do you know if, if what you're having is caused by... A cancer or just a... Well, that's a, that's a good question, Dan. <clears throat> it says here, and I didn't know this, it says some men choose to delay treatment, mm-hmm. which is called watchful waiting. Okay. I had no idea, watchful waiting. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I like uh, that a lot, <clears throat> actually. Uh, Dan, when you get to a certain age, the doctor wants to put their finger in your bottom. No, I've had that done. Yeah, well, that doctor uh, finger is trying to determine whether the prostate feels like it's got an abnormality. And I don't know if there's another way for them to, or an easier way for them to do it other than saying like, well, now that you're older, this is what we have to do. It's disagreeable, but doctors, uh, the doctors try to make it seem like matter of fact. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, I guess it's just like you're looking in my ears, except yeah anyway the third condition of the prostate is what's called enlarged prostate now listen carefully i'm listening called benign prostatic hypertrophy or hypertrophy okay benign prostatic hypertrophy i don't think it's hypertrophy although that's that's nicer i bet it's hypertrophy hypertrophy Uh, or BPH, prostate growth, now it's not explaining anything more than that, prostate growth affects virtually all men over 50. So I'm still cool right now. I am over 50. I'm 51 and now 51 and a half. Sheesh. You're on the, you're on the good side of that line. Yeah. I'm going to plan to stay. It's, it's, it, it, I swear to you, it happened to me when I was 49 and seven months. <laughs> I was like, huh, oh, what's going on? 
and here's uh, here the symptom is it is more difficult to urinate and uh that's the only problem that it causes uh, and it tends to increase with age it just means your prostate is getting bigger and because god has a sense of humor mm-hmm. he put it around the uh, the p tube and who designed this god uh, or uh, or uh, uh, evolution as john Syracuse would say it must have a evolutionary function yeah but what what it, is what the prostate it, uh, doing anyway like what's it doing it's in there jobs it's got you know it's got various jobs why okay serious question is the reason why they don't just pull it out because it's doing something important or is it oh yeah it does a lot of important things uh you don't want to lose it no uh no no i i don't think you want to lose your prostate uh what oh your prostate um oh it's a, a reproductive organ but at age 53 i mean by then i would think you could have had kids already you you've had kids well yes but uh here's here are some of the things it does it secretes prostate fluid hmm which is one of the components of semen who knew but you don't if if you're not procreating who cares if you've got the prostate juice well the muscles of the of the prostate gland help propel seminal fluid into the urethra uh, it's a little apricot, it says. And, um, so it's a hundred percent do, uh, connected to, uh, to having a orgasm, I guess. Well, then now that we're talking about something very important. Yeah. And, um, let's see. So what it, what it wants to do is it closes off the opening between the bladder and the urethra in order, I guess it's like a little gatekeeper. Okay. Keymaster, uh, gatekeeper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it. Um, oh, and a component of prostate fluid is an enzyme called prostate-specific antigen, which aids in the success of sperm. So there's a lot of yes, sperm-related and stuff. Um, it's fairly sperm-related, yeah. yeah. I didn't know this. And I mean, I think that's important, but if you're at a point in your life where the sperm isn't so, you know, there's a lot of guys, I'm not saying you should do this, John. Yeah. But there's a lot of guys who've gotten a vasectomy and they don't, they don't seem to care about their sperm. They're fine with their sperm being however it is. I don't care about those guys. They can do what they want. I've had a couple of friends. Yes, of course. At this age, you want to. It's, I mean, considering I haven't made a record in a long time, sperm is one of the only things I, I actually produce. But you've, you've had, <laughs> you've had kids. Do you plan to have more or you just want to, you want your options open? Is that the question, the concern? Well, in answer to that question, I was thinking about this the other day, I, I, I was walking through a, a an expensive neighborhood, a rich neighborhood, mm-hmm. walking with a friend, and I said, "You know, it's uh, were you my social whole life, distancing? Were you wearing masks? We were social distancing, but we okay. were we're also quarantined in the same little group. You know, my my quarantine group was um, 
was established that first week of, or second week of March when I got back from the Joko cruise. Yeah. You know, we got back here on Saturday and, uh, Ken and I record on Wednesdays Right. and Ken and I were, you know, on the cruise together the whole time on the same flight. And so on Wednesday morning, Ken texted me and he was, and he said, are we really going to quarantine, uh, 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 apart from one another, like neither of us have seen anybody since we got back and we were with each other every day while we were gone. So let's assume that we're, that we're sharing a state of quarantine. Right. And I was like, couldn't agree more. So he came over here and he's come over here every Wednesday to record since the beginning. And of all the people in the world that I trust to maintain a quarantine in his home, I think Ken, meticulous Ken is, is, um, is somebody that I, I know probably isn't going out at night and playing dominoes somewhere. Right. Anyway, so I have, I, my quarantine does not include my own mother, which is very sad Yeah. because we, we don't get to touch my, you know, we don't get to give my mom a hug or whatever on her birthday. Uh, but or, or I do Mother's have, Day. or Mother's Day, but I do have a little uh, a small group of people that we all went into quarantine at the same time and we all figured that we could trust one another. And so we, you know, maintain a very small select social, sure. social group. Uh, but I, but I was noting in looking at these giant homes, elegant homes, I said, you know, my whole life, uh, homes like this seemed to belong to prosperous adults. And, I always imagined at some point it, you know, in, in the back of my head, my imagination always believed that I would experience everything, Mm. every aspect of human life. And so although my actual day-to-day life, my behavior was that of someone that stayed out all night and, uh, followed a hippie to a second location mm-hmm. and, um, was, uh, you know, wine, women and song, yep. uh, unrestricted travel, all uh, the things no, we, we like most about you. Yeah. There was a place in my head that also thought, well, and also one day I will own an elegant home in a, in a nice neighborhood and I will, you know, walk down the, the tree lined sidewalks with my, um, three toe-headed children mm-hmm. on our way to a, um, you know, on, on their way to Groton, where they all attend uh, private school. Mm-hmm. And I was making no effort at any point in my life to accomplish even the first rung of that ladder. And I don't come from money, so it's not like money was going to suddenly uh, I, I was, no one was going to bestow that life upon me, but still I was like, Oh yeah, you know, because I've always felt like no door was closed to me. And so an elegant home in a nice neighborhood was just as likely, uh, as any other possible outcome, including that I would be a United States Senator or that, um, uh, that my podcast would become very, very popular uh, or that the UFOs would arrive and appoint me their spokesperson on earth. Right. 
But now, walking through those neighborhoods, I, I, I suddenly realize, wait, the people that live here are not elders. They're not grown-ups in the sense that they're older than me. Yeah. The people that buy these homes are people in their 40s who are rich. Because you see kids everywhere. All these these houses have these, you know, uh, have too many cho- toys in them because mm-hmm. they're rich people and they don't know how to care for their kids except buy them things. And walking down the street, I'm like, oh, right. All these people are in their 30s and 40s. Right. They're, they're like having babies. Mm-hmm. So they're not babies having older babies. than me. Yeah, they're babies having babies. That's right. We would like to say thank you very much to our friends over at ExpressVPN. That's right. You heard me right. ExpressVPN. They make sure that your ISP, people don't know, but ISP stands for Internet Service Provider. I'm here to tell you that. It, it, it can see everywhere you go. They can see everywhere that you, every site you visit, every connection that any one of your devices make. Did you realize that? So whether you're on your phone, your computer, your TV, streaming something, your ISP knows about it. And they don't just know what you're, what you're doing. They know exactly what you're doing. Think about that. ExpressVPN makes sure that they can't see what sites you visit or what you're doing. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. And so each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means that everything you do is anonymized. It can't be traced back to you because privacy is important. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. You can use the internet with confidence from your computer, like I mentioned, your tablet, sure, phone, yep, it has you covered on every device. You tap one button and you are protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's the one I use. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and so many more. So why not protect your online activity right now, today, with a VPN that I trust for my own privacy? You can visit my special link. It is expressvpn.com slash roadwork. You could have guessed that expressvpn.com slash roadwork. You can get an extra three months free on their one year package last time. So you don't forget it. Expressvpn.com slash roadwork. Go there. Just go in there. Supports the show. You should really try this thing out. I use it. I wouldn't go anywhere without a VPN these days. So thanks very much to ExpressVPN for making this show possible. I have crossed, uh, I've crossed the line where there aren't, very many young people that are older than me, if you know what I'm saying. I do. And this has been hard for me as a, uh, as a perpetually young person, um, to arrive at a, at a time in life where there are still some young people that are right around my age, but not many young people much older than me. Right. And that's been a, that's been an adjustment for sure. But, but for me, I have always imagined that I would have, um, a handful of kids between two and five. Hmm. My dad had five kids. Um, and sort of, you know, five kids just felt like maybe the right number of kids between okay. two and five. 
Now, what happened in my life was I had my daughter with um, my daughter's mother, my mm-hmm. my domestic partner. Yeah. And we have had a, a wonderful time together the last nine years, um, raising this little girl together, and um, and she is, uh, you know, she's the light of my life. I could not ask for more. But there's still a uh, this part in my imagination that imagines that I would be a U.S. senator or that I would have a big house that still feels like, well, I would like to have another child. Um, I think children are really interesting and, you know, I don't want to have another child as part of a stay young forever project. Uh, the, the number one thing that inhibits me, well, the number one thing that inhibits me is that it would radically change our lives. It, like the life, the lives that we have right now as a, as a small family. Right. Um, because we are very involved in one another's, um, day. And when I was dating millennium girlfriend, Mm. um, that was extremely destructive to peace in the Valley. Right. And, and a big part of that was millennium girlfriend was not very, um, she, she was someone who exerted a tremendous amount of control uh, in the, in matters that pertain to her life. And she believed that um, now I was her boyfriend slash super boyfriend. And there were requirements, you know, there were, there were rules to be followed. And one of those was that I was now devoted to her. And so all decisions that I made needed to conform to the template of being devoted to, her or, or being devoted to one. And my mentality was, well, I have a child with a woman and that woman is, is, uh, my closest friend. And I know sometimes you start a new relationship with someone and that changes who your closest friend is, but it doesn't change who your child is. No. And in my life, in the 1970s in particular, and in my own life, when my parents got divorced, their lack of ability to reconcile their interests with the other's interests led to my childhood being uh, like a fucking rock tumbler mm. you know from mm. one day to the next you didn't know what which parent was going to start causing a problem and have that problem um end up involving my sister and me in ways that were out of our control that seem insane to me now and i know a lot of people it's just so commonplace that they fall apart from their um from their betrothed or their partner or whatever, and they fall in love with someone else. Mm -hmm. Now that seems perfectly natural, but in falling in love with that someone else, suddenly their child or children become what seems to be a very secondary matter in their decision-making process. 
like, oh, I met this, uh, you know, I, I met my second wife and we moved to somewhere else. Without, the, see without my, the kid. And I only see my kid on, you know, yeah, every see my kid two months. Uh, Christ, Christmas time even, right. you know, or, uh, my, I, I married a new wife and, um, and we had a couple of kids together and my kid from my first marriage lives in an, in an attic room. Mm. Um, you know, I have, I have very close friends who report that when their parent married a new spouse, mm -hmm. their lives changed utterly in that at 10 years old, they were no longer considered not only important members of the family, but really members of the family at all because the new step parent never took an interest in them. And so, you know, their old parent spent a lot of time trying to please the new parent and deal with the new family. Right. And so they became like sidelined at eight, nine, 10 years old. Right. And so on and so forth in my, you know, my own parents, when my mom left my dad, she left Alaska, put us, put my sister and me in a suitcase, got on a late night Alaska airlines flight or Western airlines or whatever it was at the time and flew to Seattle and, and rejoined her old life as best mm -hmm. she could. Yeah. And my dad stayed in Alaska. Which to me now just seems like, huh, how hard is it? I mean, what was so, I mean, I guess Alaska is amazing. Don't get me wrong. But I personally cannot imagine at this point or at any point up till now being separate from my kid. Neither can I. <clears throat> For any reason, really. You know, I, I'm, I was, not to interrupt your, your statement, but um, you know, when my parents got divorced, we stayed in Philadelphia for, for quite a while, but eventually we moved to Florida because that was where my mom's family, for the most part, her parents and her sister and uh, my uncle had all relocated there. The, you know, it, it, she had a good job offer there, so we moved there. But my dad made no effort whatsoever to um, follow us there or spend any time there or even protest the situation. Not that that would have mattered. I, maybe he just knew that it wouldn't have mattered and he probably knew that that was a better situation, but it's exactly like you were talking about. I only saw, you know, at that point I only saw him, you know, like you're saying like Christmas time or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, my dad, <clears throat> my dad worked hard to see us, but until I moved to Alaska in 1978, I mean, when my mom describes it, she says he came down all the time and that meant every two months. So every two months he would come down from Alaska and he'd spend four days with us. He'd get a, a room at the Washington Athletic Club and we would go down and stay with him at the Washington Athletic Club, which is a, you know, like a men's club downtown right? where the, the lobby was full of uh, leather chairs and people sitting around smoking cigars. They didn't allow women to join the Washington Athletic Club until sometime in my lifetime, um, there was a, you know, and there was a man in a, in a bellhop costume at a podium that would allow you to go into the lobby, but not into the elevators. Right. And the Washington athletic club had a swimming pool and a tennis courts and a barber shop and all this old school, um, stuff. 
uh, and you know, lots of, uh, Siskel and Ebert sitting around and, and, um, <laughs> it was quite, it was quite a scene, but every two months is what, is what my relationship with my dad was like from the age of four to the age of 10. Mm. And then, I, you know, I would go up in the summers and when I was five, six, seven, I would go up in the summers for a month and then, you know, seven, eight, nine, I would go up there for the whole summer. Anyway, when I was dating millennium girlfriend, we were on a path to having a family, mm -hmm. she and I, but we could not reconcile um, the existence of my present family. Right. Because although I was devoted to her and although I was interested in a family with her and uh, interested in being with her in every sense of that, I was not, I did not consider it necessary that I no longer have a daily relationship with my existing daughter. And there, there would be no reason that you would ever not have that, that I can think no of. No reason. No reason. None. And Absolutely here's not. the, here's the extension of that thought. I could see therefore no reason to not have a daily, uh, relationship on good terms and, and with, with fellow feeling with my daughter's mother who never did me any wrong, mm -hmm. who has been uh, courteous and gentle and right. loving, uh, presence in my life from the, from the day my daughter was born till now. I'm not interested in, in punishing her. I'm not interested in excluding her. I'm interested in keeping her in, well, and, and in remaining in her life for the duration. Yeah. And none of that, at least in my emotional, uh, world, the way that my emotions are built, the two things are n not exclusive. I can be in love with millennium girlfriend and start a family with her and have her be the center of my life and also have my daughter be a daily presence and also remain on wonderful terms with my daughter's mother. The only thing keeping that from happening is that my daughter's mother and my millennium girlfriend reach a rapprochement with one another <laughs> okay. about where they stand and what the deal is between them. Because if they're uncivil to one another, it puts me in an incredibly stressful place for no reason, because there's no, you know, at least from where I stood, there's no threat. Neither. I mean, millennium girlfriend does pose a real threat to my daughter's mother in the sense that she, that she, that the threat is that I will become fascinated by her and drift away. And that happened to my daughter's mother, her own father and mother separated. Her father continued to live in the same town with her and saw her once every two weeks for an afternoon. And of course she felt incredibly abandoned. Mm -hmm. 
but her father had a new girlfriend and he was off. And I think some of this is that men don't bond with their children um, or at least didn't used to. That kind of the, 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 the they were world sort of was fulfilled that provider role of the way that they bonded and what they did was that was I'm putting food on the table. You have a house to live in and, and you go to a school and you have clothing and that's that's me being a great dad. Yeah, right. And I think those uh, what happened then was that in those, you know, that first six months or year of the child's life, the father was not encouraged or invited to be part of the baby's life and the father self excluded also. Mm. So, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a world divided by gender, but that, you know, the, the child's mother, her mother, the aunts, her friends, um, built a protective sort of, uh, wall ar- around the child uh, partly because that was just what, what was done, but also, you know, you can see that happening if you're not as a guy, um, you have to assert yourself, uh, when your child is born and having a nuclear family makes it easier than having an extended family. Cause there just aren't that many ants living in the house, but you know, a father has to say, I am going to be involved in every aspect of my child's life. I am going to, you know, I'm never going to step out for a cigarette, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go back to work on Monday and come home and throw my hat on the hat rack and ask what's for dinner. I'm going to like, my child is my thing. And I mean, my, my daughter came up to me the other day and she was like, you were the first person to hold me. And I was like, yep, I, mm-hmm. I delivered you, you know, for all intents and purposes. Right. And she said, you were the first person I saw. And I was like, you are, I am. My boy and I talk about that a lot. He says the same stuff. Yeah. You, I opened my eyes and you were there. And that's, Mm -hmm. and I said, that's right. (laughs) And I was, and I've been there ever since. And so to have that relationship with your child requires work in the first few months. If you don't bond with your kid in that, in that, first period, um, it's harder to, I mean, you kind of have to wait then until your kid is articulate and you can say like, what do you think about the air force? And you're <laughs> right. You know, your eight year old is like, I think that the F 16 is a better weapons platform. And you're like, Hey, there you go. I'll, I'll debate you now. But, uh, but until then, you know, if you're just like a, if you're a cigar chomping dad sitting in his chair somewhere, what the hell is a three year old except a pain in the ass? Anyway, Millennium Girlfriend and my daughter's mother could not reach even a modicum of civility between them. Was it that they would butt heads when they spoke or were they, nope. were, were they not even speaking? Not speaking. And, the, mm. and, the, and this was very similar to periods of my life as a kid, although neither my parents remarried or ever had an issue with one another that, that revolved around a different person being in, in, in the equation. They just went through many long, long periods where they didn't speak because they both were very sensitive people and one would get their feelings hurt and they would say, you know, fuck them forever. And then it would, then my sister and I would be shuttling between these two homes where the principal adults in our lives didn't communicate with one another. And it's, it's just a 
roll of the dice or a, a fortune of our natures that my sister and I didn't really exploit that like you could have, right? We could have played the parents against one another. We could have been off uh, playing dominoes late at night and neither parent would have would have known. And later on in our teen years, I would say, I'm headed to dad's. And there wasn't any way for her to check without calling and talking to my dad. Right. And so I could go anywhere. And the, the fucked up thing about me is I went to the library. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't going and doing drugs, right? It was right. something strange about me as a kid. But, but the fact that no matter what I tried to do to say, all you need to do is just talk and, and come to some sort of truce. Um, the uh, millennium girlfriend's response was always that I needed to, uh, I needed to tell my daughter's mother how it was. And if I didn't do that, I was disrespecting her, my new girlfriend by not telling my daughter's mother that, that, um, and what were you, what was her goal? What were you supposed to say? Oh, for instance, uh, a millennium girlfriend at one point said, I want to come to you. I want to come to your daughter's birthday party. And I said, well, the birthday party is being hosted by her mother. Her mother is inviting her mother and all of her friends mm -hmm. who comprise my daughter's, uh, class of ants. Mm -hmm. She is, uh, she is behind the, the whole theme of the party, the party is being held, you know, in her neighborhood effectively by her. And you have made it clear that you want nothing to do with this very important woman in my daughter's and my life. And so I'm not going to invite you to this birthday party. You must be insane. You need to have some relationship with the woman that's throwing the party. Because what I'm going to bring you to this party and you're going to cling to my arm and glare across the room at the 15 other women over there who are glaring back at you. And I'm going to be in the center and the true center who is my daughter is going to be at her own birthday party surrounded by vibing adults who are, <laughs> you know, who are speaking to each other in clipped tones and whatnot. Why the fuck would I ever? In right. a million years, consider playing any role in that useless drama. And her response, millennium girlfriend, was to say, well, if you don't, if you don't tell, um, if you don't tell your daughter's mother that I'm coming to the birthday party, then you are betraying me as your, as your partner and I forbid you to go oh. to the birthday party. That, that, that's, that's not something that would go well with John, I wouldn't think. I said, you forbid me to go to my daughter's birthday. <laughs> Let's unpack that sentence. Yes, yes. Let's, you know what? Let's diagram the sentence and we can see all the <laughs> different components of it. Right. And I said, you, you are exhibiting a mental illness. If you think any of these things are in your power to control, right. of course. Now I understand that you imagine 
what happens in life when someone gets a new partner is that the new partner erases all past and, um, and the two new people are born again in their relationship. And that's the only way to have a, uh, to have your love fully bloom. But you are wrong. Yes, or in this case, true. in this case, at least, that is not practical. It is not practicable. It's not going to happen. Let's just say like you <laughs> did not, uh, you did not discover in me, um, an archetype of me, um, a platonic ideal of me. What you have in me is me and I'm never going to submit to those conditions. Never. So you can, you can break up with me is kind of your option or we can reach some kind of agreement. And all I ask is civility and common sense. Well, eventually, you know, she just sort of abandoned the protest. And I think it was one of the few times that she reached out to, um, to my daughter's mother in question and said, I would like to attend this birthday party in a, you know, kind of formal email. Yeah. And did you know that she was going to do this or was this a new, a new thing? Uh, who knew from one day to the, to the next, what would happen? Right. Uh, but I, I didn't orchestrate it other than just saying like, that's the minimum condition. Right. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to hold your hand. Like you're a full grown, you're a freaking lawyer. Like figure out a way to send an email to somebody. And my daughter's mother graciously replied and said, please, you're welcome to come to the birthday party. Even though I don't think she wanted her there at all. And having been invited, she then let a week go by and said, oh, uh, it said to me like, oh yeah, uh, that week I have a, a thing at the office or something. Mm -hmm. And just sort of like, you know. So was she going to be traveling from, wasn't she, didn't she live in, in San Francisco or somewhere else? Yeah. At that point she may have. Uh, she may have been living in Los Angeles by then. Okay. And I mean, this is also a big part of the problem, right? She wanted to live in California. I lived in Seattle and we were already uh, working hard to overcome the distance. Sure. Par particularly if I wasn't, you know, I, I, I acquiesced to, um, to being away from my kid for four days at a time. And you can buy a ticket from LA to Seattle for a hundred dollars. And it's a two hour flight, mm -hmm. two and a half. Mm -hmm. And because millennium girlfriend lived in Venice and I lived close to the airport. I mean, there were more than uh, on more than one occasion. I flew to LA in the morning and flew home at night. It's not easy to do. But not hard, really, compared yeah. to how hard some things are. You know, if if um, if my daughter lived in Bellingham, um, the whole trip would. If I had to drive up there and back, the trip would almost take more vitamins than living in L.A. But you know, that's not obviously ideal. If you if you have an ideal in mind. If your ideal is fully formed already and mm -hmm. you're looking for a, 
a human person to slot into it. And that, and your ideal was not, I wonder if one day my prince will come and he'll live in a different city and we will see each other and he'll have a kid and we'll see each other every week for three to four days. And every week he will spend three to four days in, um, in his hometown. But the thing is, there was nothing keeping millennium girlfriend from coming to Seattle every week on Friday afternoon and leaving on Sunday evening or Sunday morning. And if I was willing to go down there from Tuesday to Friday, right there, it's, it was absolutely doable. And the only thing that made it stressful was whether or not we embraced it and thought it was fun. And it was our way. We would like to thank Mac Weldon and that great Mac Weldon. They make such great clothing. That's all. I mean, I could stop there. I just go there, get the stuff that you need. They, they make clothing that is really great and they make it for men. Okay. That's, that's who it's for. That's who they're designed and designing all their stuff for socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear. And now they have a new adjustable storm chaser rain jacket and all of their stuff is really the longest lasting, highest quality stuff on the market. Case in point, when they first became a sponsor years and years ago, I bought one of their hoodies. I'm not a big hoodie wearer, but I really liked this one and I wore it quite a bit. And then my son stole it from me and now he wears it. So it's gone to the second person now and he's been, he wears it, wore it all through the whole winter. He doesn't get cold. I don't know what it is about him. He doesn't get cold. He can be out 40 degree weather, just a hoodie. He's fine. Maybe it's this hoodie. Maybe it's the magic of the Mack Weldon hoodie. I don't know. Maybe you need a hoodie and you do need something from Mack Weldon. It could be the socks. They make great socks, the kind of socks that don't show through your sneakers. They, they make underwear. They're famous for their silver underwear. There's so much great stuff that they make. And they really care. And it's really, really high quality. And like I mentioned, the silver underwear, and they have shirts like this now too. They're naturally antimicrobial. They eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. If you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you. Because I think they say that because they know you're going to like it. I love it. So here's the thing. They really value their loyal customers. And they've created something called Weldon Blue. Okay, it's a loyalty program. Here's how it works. First of all, it's free. You just go create an account. The account is free. You place any order for any amount and you never pay for shipping again. Pretty cool, right? Once you purchase 200 bucks worth of products from Mack Weldon, not only will you continue to receive free shipping, you will also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year. That's level two. Level two also gives you access to new products before they're released to anyone else, as well as free gifts that they just add to your future order. So remember, level one, place an order for any amount, never pay for shipping. Level two, you get 200 bucks worth of stuff, you start saving 20% and you get cool stuff. It's great. They're a fun company. I actually visited their office when I had to go to New York a few years ago. It was the best best part of my whole trip to New York was hanging out with those guys. So again, 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com. Enter the promo code ROADWORK. That's important. We got to mention that. MacWeldon.com. Promo code is ROADWORK. You can get 20% off your first order. That's even if you don't do the Weldon Blue stuff, but you should. You should be a Weldon Blue person. I am. 
So go check it out. And uh, we really appreciate their support. MacWeldon.com. Promo code ROADWORK. Thanks to MacWeldon for making the show possible. Now, I ad- I admit I am not a... I, I am not a normal. Right. But it that doesn't seem that far off the beaten path. I'm not asking everyone to live in the same house. Right. I'm not asking everyone to call me, um, you know, like John Scotland and ever, and they all take the last name Scotland right. and we're, uh, members of the Scotland group. Right. And they wear white robes. You know, I'm not, there's nothing weird happening. It's just situational. And eventually uh, our relationship couldn't, um, couldn't sustain all those pressures, but I was prepared to have children with millennium girlfriend Mm. and try to try to have a, um, you know, a family that was, um, a rainbow. And the only reason I didn't was that we, that if that, have that introducing a child into that situation was only going to quadruple the stress. And I just couldn't see quadrupling the stress. And I, and I felt like when she and I broke up, it took me about a week of mourning before I realized that it was, uh, that, that would have been a disaster for us to continue together. I was sad when we broke up. Oh yeah. But, but I, I'm I'm at a kind of a crossroads here, right? I mean, my daughter's nine, and at nine years old, she still needs needs me on an hourly basis. Yeah. When she's, I don't know how old it is, but twelve, thirteen, she's still going to need me on an hourly basis. She's just not going to think so. <laughs> she's going to think that she is doesn't need me and is fine and wants me to get the hell out of there. Maybe, maybe, but you know, she still needs me around, but by the time she's 13, now I'm going to be 54, Mm -hmm. 55 and 55 absolutely still feels as a guy, like a time that you could start a second family. It means that when my kids are turned 20, I'm in my mid seventies. Um, but I was, I mean, my dad was 48, 40, hmm. my dad was 48 when I was born. And although he was always older than other parents, at the time, mm-hmm. um, in my, I was, um, I was 40 when he died. And although I miss him every day, he didn't die at a time in my life when, um, I needed to talk to him every day. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I was 40 years old. I was like in the, I was in my, you know, I was in my life. Mm-hmm. And if my dad was still in my life now, it would be, um, it would be great, but it's so different than having your dad die when you're 12 or even when you're 25. Oh, yeah. Of course. And my dad died at 87, which is 
which is a, a nice long life, but um, it, it's not like he lived to be 95, mm-hmm. which, which would have, um, you know, which would have meant that he was alive until I was almost 50. I mean, that would have, it feels like that's plenty <laughs> when it comes to having a parent in your life because yeah. having your parent die is kind of like a, that's just one more life event. Right. And you know, look at Prince Charles. He's been waiting for his mom to die since the mid seventies. So, but, but it does feel like there's the Tony Randall problem of like 55 starting a new family. That feels certainly doable for me, given that I'm, that I'm a, uh, a, still a young person in many ways. And by virtue of my, um, by virtue of my personality and also a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, the, the fashion for, um, like barrel chested beardos in the world today, (laughs) you know, I'm still appealing, right? But past much past there, it starts to be unseemly. And there are plenty of people that would argue it would be unseemly even now for me to have, um, to have children at 55 or to be, uh, to try and forge a partnership with a woman that is that much younger than me, given, given that, you know, there is a kind of cutoff for, um, how old a woman probably should be, uh, in terms of, procreating okay. at least if you if you ask the doctors so you know you you don't think or or it's it's popular in the world to think that that you know women have a have a fertility clock but men don't but of course you do if you want to be in a in a bonded relationship with your kids and be in their lives um, from hour to hour throughout their childhood. And imagining myself now, like going through that period between when the child is six months old and six years old, Mm -hmm. which is an awful lot of work. I don't have to tell you uh, where the child really does need you on a minute yeah, by very minute much. basis. Very much. And the child is giving back lots of smiles and farts mm-hmm. and fun little moments, but the child is not giving back nearly as much as they are consuming. Oh, right. So I do want more kids. But I cannot quite pencil out how to um, accomplish it where no one gets hurt and everyone benefits. And kind of like the big house in the nice neighborhood, it feels like something I always would absolutely do 
in my life at some point. I just didn't feel like I needed to plan for it. It would just happen. Someone would bestow it upon me. And now it it does feel like there are constrictions on all sides. Um, and And I think primarily the constrictions are how do I how do I fulfill my obligation? How do I uphold my promise to my kid and not betray her? And yet also, and I think the thing is, she would love it if I had kids. She says it to me all the time. Yeah. Why don't you have- Why, why don't I have why a little brother? Why don't I have a little sister? Yeah, why don't you have more kids? And when I say, well, you know, I'm not sure that your mom and I- want to have another kid she says well why don't you have another kid with someone else right like she's not um she's not dumb about the world and she knows that that um you know she was the funny thing is she was on good terms with millennium girlfriend they liked one another oh yeah we traveled together we we all went to that's so important too isn't it well it was great and it was partly it was that Millennium girlfriend also thought of herself as a nine-year-old girl sometimes. <laughs> so they just had, you know, they just would go right into it. And, um, and so, you know, my daughter is, was already plenty ready for a millennium girlfriend to be her stepmom and for us right. to have right. a baby, even though sure. we never talked about that in front of her. She got it. She knew it was happening. Right. So in that sense, it's, um, it's not my kid that, that is the direct inhibition. It's the question of how do you have a blended family? How do you, how do you meet someone and say, Hey, I'd like you, you know, instead of like, now it's time for you to meet my parents. It's like, now it's time for you to meet my family right. that I'm, that I'm not prepared to destroy. Mm-hmm. And, um, how you like me now? <laughs> it's, uh, and the, the thing is from the standpoint of, of, a of a woman that wanted to be in a relationship with me and have a family with me, the fact that I would never abandon my, prior family is kind that, of a good I was going to say that indicator. that's a that's a bonus that's a plus that's critical that's what you want I, I mean would you think. would think that, think, that but, pisses me off that that was that, that was the bad thing because that's an yeah. extraordinarily good thing right but I but I I realized in that whole process that I was using a uh, a set of criteria that uh, just her toolkit was completely different you know and it wasn't just a question of her toolkit being metric Mm. it was that i had a hammer and a and a pry bar and a lathe and a set of screwdrivers and she had a laser pointer a uh slide rule of a, a rolled up newspaper and a and a texas instruments graphing calculator and 
what we were trying to do was um, bake a cake. <laughs> right, right. And so we just didn't have the tools and didn't know what we were trying to make with them. So I think about it all the time, Dan. Yeah. I walk around all the time thinking, you know, where, what am I going to do? And, and, and I'm, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the women that I know and have known over my life, over the course of, of my adult life, mm -hmm. a lot of them have gone into their fifties, not having had children. Yeah. And in a lot of those cases, I don't think that that was intentional. It wasn't a plan. It was, a there, there came a moment when they, I think found, they looked around and realized that the choice had been made. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a, you know, the choice had been made passively and all of those women and speaking them, speaking of them as a group is hard to do because you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big group of the people that have been closest to me in life. Mm -hmm. So I know them all well, uh, each in her own right and know them all enough to know that at no point in, in the time that we were close, which in some cases was decades, did any of them say, I don't want kids. In fact, kind of the opposite. But when we were in our 20s, it wasn't really fashionable to say, like, I want kids someday. It was fashionable to, fashionable to be cool and say, oh, man, the world is so fucked up. Why would anybody bring a kid well, yeah, into that was That was the sentiment that we heard all the time. Why would I bring a kid into the, this world? Right. But that is not actually the thing that someone that doesn't want kids says. Right. That's some, that's something that. I mean, I probably that, uh, said that John. Yeah, I know. I never said it cause I always knew I wanted kids, but it's the type of thing that you say when you're like, I don't, but you know, if you don't want kids, what you say is like, yeah, I don't think I want kids. I'm not. And I have friends like that who've been married for 30 years and they're like, yeah. we never wanted kids. That's like, wow. All right. You know, hat tip to you. I have, I have several friends, married friends, and they tend to be the ones that have been married the longest. We're like, we don't have kids. We have little dogs. That's right. what right. Our, our kids are these little dogs. The one person in my life that has said for a long time, I just don't want kids is my sister. And my mm -hmm. sister will be 49, I guess this year. And my sister has lived this kind of, jump out of an airplane style life her whole life. Mm -hmm. And I think she recognizes that, she, that being a mother maybe is a set of skills that she doesn't possess. But her relationship with my daughter has become, you know, kind of the, one of the focus points of her life mm -hmm. and being an aunt has become very important to her. But the, you know, the people I know that, kind of aged out of being mothers before 
their imaginations caught up with that. Oh, right. Where they always imagined that they would have a big house in addition to getting to do whatever they wanted through their 20s, 30s, and 40s. (laughs) And not, you know, and needing a man like a fish needs a bicycle and starting their own businesses or, or living their best lives. And then one day going, oh, I guess I'm not going to have kids and kind of sitting, needing to sit with that. But it's a thing that have, that once it happens, once you don't have kids, you don't have kids unless you adopt. Right. And, you know, in a lot of those cases, they didn't have kids because they never felt like they found a partner. And honestly – if you have not found a partner, you probably shouldn't adopt kids either, unless you're really, really have some inner strength, you know, some, some powerful inner strength. And there's a part of me that feels like in a handful of those instances, I was the one that they, that came closest to being the one that they had kids with. Mm. And we were at the time, at that time in our lives, living both in a state of like sort of extended youth where we, what we wanted to do was travel or what we wanted to do was go to shows or what we wanted to do was eat out every night. We didn't think of ourselves as as partners in the same way of like, uh, let's, let's build family together. It just wasn't, we didn't even, we didn't even think of it in terms of let's get some small dogs. 